This is Sphere, a podcast on the history and evolution of global environmental governance. Hi, my name is Eric Pagli, and welcome to episode four of the podcast Sphere, a podcast on the evolution of global environmental governance. And joining me here live in the studio, we have uh, one of the researchers in the Sphere project, Eric Eastbury. He's a PhD candidate in the project, and he's already published uh, several articles, conducted quite a bit of uh, archival research, attended some conferences. Of course, a lot of this was disrupted by um, the pandemic, but uh, he's well on his way uh, on his um, PhD dissertation about halfway through. And I think it's a good time to uh, to check in with him and to learn more about his dissertation, about some of his um, research, uh, which really does combine some conceptual work uh, with a lot of uh, empirical research. His current work concerns the scientific construction of a global environment and particularly how planetary timescales were increasingly incorporated into human history and global environmental governance. So, Eric Eastbury, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover here. And uh, like I said, we have both the conceptual aspects and also the empirical aspects of your research. And Why don't we start by... Um, looking at one of the sort of the central uh, themes of your research, and uh, that's the concept of Earth as a governable object. Uh, wh- what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Uh, and I think this notion of Earth as a governable object is not only in my research, but also in the Sphere project as a whole. And it is really about this question of how did the entire planet become conceived of as a governance issue? How did that come about that today we take that for granted that human impact on the planet is so vast and so thoroughly um, incorporated into everything that we do. Uh, But really, it's a quite recent form of knowledge that human impact is on a planetary scale. So that is a bit of a question. How did this enormous shift in how humans and politics relate to the natural world, how did it come about? Um, and that is really a historical process unfolding over over time in the 20th century, but really uh, in the post-war era in particular. So I think in my research and in the Sphere Project in general, that is really a question that, that animates uh, all of our research, the different aspects of this transformative shift. Some of these themes uh, seem to echo uh, what we've heard about the Anthropocene uh, after the Second World War, the Great Acceleration, uh, humans uh, gaining the power to really alter the sort of the functioning of the planet, and some of the the temporal aspects. And uh, when we talk about temporality, perhaps you can explain that further. That's one of your specialties. Talk a bit about that, about this this post-war period, and uh, how humans started to alter. Uh, the planet, both in terms of the the scope and the impact, but also the the sort of the, the longer term uh, way of looking at this. Yeah, I, I think that is a really interesting part of this this sort of scaling up of human impact, and that is both about the kind of spatial aspects that we can see the entire global environment. That is a kind of well well told story in environmental history how how this view from outer space, for example, of Earth as this one thing that is spatially connected. But what I look at is another aspect of this same uh, history, I think, that concerns the time scales and how different things on Earth are changing due to human impact. Uh, and they're changing on vastly different timescales, but they're all somehow related to the kind of destructive uh, impact from from the economic and material conditions on in human society. So when I talk about kind of temporality, the term is a bit can seem a bit vague, but it really concerns how 
the past, the present and the future is sort of related to one another. So in the present, how do you conceive of what is the past and what is the future and how do they relate? And of course, when you think about something like the Anthropocene, given the kind of geological timescales of, of uh, human agency, then you get a vastly different outlook of what is the relevant future for us to think of environmentally, for example, and what events in the past are relevant for us to understand where we are today. And in my research, I've, I'm trying to get to how this, these timescales expanded. So the kind of notion of what is an irrelevant environmental timescale, if we want to talk about human impact. So they grew also, just as the kind of scaling up happened spatially, that you were not only looking at your local environment, like what happens in your backyard, uh, maybe in, in a forest near you, but you started thinking about this entire planet as one object, then also the timescales was not just these short-term changes happening, perhaps due to something like acidification in a lake, for example, which has a shorter time span, even though there can also be long-term consequences. But these, these long timescales that concern the entire planet that ranges into, uh, say, sea level rise or the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere also operates on other sort of temporal registers, these long timescales. So that is one aspect, I think, of how the concept of the environment grew in the post-war era. Very important for your research in, in sort of in creating this, this view is the work of uh, certain scientific disciplines, particular Scientists, even you, you really focus on uh, some particular individuals uh, over the past fifty or sixty years, and also the the materials they work with, the environmental objects, as as you call them. Uh, can you explain a bit about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. What I focus on really is how the knowledge about these temporal changes are coming about. Like, how do you know this? How can you know? that some event happened in the climate in the deep past, say thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago, and how can you use them to predict what might happen in the future, possibly also due to human impact? And th these kinds of, of questions started to arise in the post-war era in, in different fields, almost independent of each other, but somehow also uh, there were some connections as well, but in different fields that previously were operating in their own uh, sort of sections, like glaciology, for example, in, in the Arctic and Antarctic, or in oceanography uh, in the oceans, uh, or also in uh, uh, palynology. They work with the pollen samples in, in bogs and lakes, for example. So different fields started to get to these questions of of trying to find knowledge in their different areas. These different materials, like ice, for example, in the form of ice cores, which are these long cutouts you can drill up from, from glaciers. Uh, and in these cores, you can see the past composition of the atmosphere and at previous points in time. And this was a new technology in the post-war era that sort of gradually beca became very important for knowledge about human impact. So it's really a, a story about how these different work um, in, in a very material way in the field, in the deep seas, in the glaciers, in the bogs, started to move towards this understanding of one singular planet. Uh, and that is, I think, something that happened quite rapidly, really, say between the 1950s and the 1980s. There was quite dramatic exploration and, and, and uh, development in these, in these fields, and particularly in connecting. So how do the oceans relate to the glaciers and to the forests and the kind of building these planetary conceptions? So this period uh, is also, I guess, the gestation period of this, this discipline uh, that is nowadays known as Earth System Science, which figures very prominently 
in uh, in your research as well. But before we talk about that uh, in in and of itself, um, perhaps you, it's, I think it's always good to have some particular examples. You talk mm. about uh, some ice cores and some uh, glaciological research. Um, I know that you, you have uh, certain particular scientists that kind of illustrate these processes and, and these materialities. Uh, perhaps you can give some examples of some of the, the people you're looking at. Yeah, certainly. So I can somehow conceive my work in a way as a kind of prehistory of Earth system science. And we can get to Earth system science in a bit, but how that kind of interdisciplinary field could come about in the first place. So one of the actors that I look into in particular is a Danish ice core scientist uh, called Vili Danskord. Uh, and he was active really throughout the entirety of, of the post-war era and all these, was part in many of these transformative phases of ice core science um, and glaciology. And he, he started out as a geophysicist working in the 1950s in Copenhagen and was interested in how you could use uh, different methods to sample water and see if you could date the water in some way. He's an isotope dating method, he called it. So he developed these novel ways of, for example, uh, sampling rainwater to gather certain characteristics from the rainwater he gathered. And, and so sort of gradually came to understand that this can be used to understand when the water is from what's happened in this uh, in this material. So it really became the water as an archive, in a sense, that he could use to gather information about the past. And he started working on ice uh, in Greenland in the 1950s and 60s and was then part of the kind of rapid expansion of ice core science uh, from the 1960s and 1970s. So I think it's a really important context here is the Cold War and the mobilization of resources in the Arctic for geopolitical reasons from the US and and the Soviet Union. And so Vilidanskud could utilize an army base in Greenland called Camp Century that was being abandoned by the Americans. And, and this base was used really to try to drill uh, in the ice sheet. It was built inside the ice sheet so you can plant ballistic missiles inside the ice. But as the US forces were abandoning the camp, Vilidanskord asked if he could come there and instead drill for ice. And that is really the kind of context in which these ice core drillings took a great leap forward, utilizing that technology from the Cold War and the army. That's fascinating how these these uh, these two histories kind of overlap and intertwine and, and kind of support each other, mutually uh, reinforce each other. This idea of trying to gain understanding of the planet uh, for for military purposes, whether it's ballistic missiles or what have you, uh, or just for strictly scientific research, that now has come into to great uh, use for uh, for understanding uh, the the impact of humans on on the planet as a whole with the climate change and uh, all the rest. And these these ice cores that uh, that Dan Scored uh, drilled these are these are still these are become like historic objects in and of themselves, right? Those are stored someplace, I think, in Copenhagen? Yeah, uh, and that is really um, a kind of fascinating story that takes place after this this first proto-phase of trying to drill up these ice cores, that what happens in, in 1966, there is a great successful drilling of an ice core that goes all the way from the top down to bedrock in Greenland. So it's a it's a vast expansion of like how deep you can go and then thereby also how long back in time you can date the ice because the... The basic principle is that the lower you get, the, the older the ice. And after that, uh, the ice is was recovered from Greenland and then put into different freezers and sort of circulated in this network of ice core archives, which are these like freezing facilities in Copenhagen, in the US, uh, in different places. But it's really, I think, shows how the kind of geographies of where you can study ice 
goes from the field in in the in the Arctic or in Antarctica to these different sort of lab facilities. So you you change the uh, your adventure gear and all your winter coats for like a lab coat when you study ice. So it's a it's a transformation of really how you encounter this material. But yeah, that's true. Now the ice cores are really objects in themselves, and it was just a month ago or so when there was a new scientific discovery in one of the old samples from Camp Century uh, that was found lying around in a freezer in Copenhagen that they had forgotten about, basically, uh, which contained small samples of leaves, which seems to indicate that Greenland has indeed been green uh, much later in time than was previously understood. So now it's really kind of an excavating uh, going on in the freezers themselves, which I think really shows how climate science has a long history now that these, these, there's been generational changes in who does the work and what is, what is now relevant to look for in these samples. So people keep returning to them in, in present time. Well, it's kind of like the work of historians. And I think that um, the word archive is very interesting because you often associate that with the work of historians like yourself. But uh, these are, it's also a very relevant uh, concept for, for natural scientists as well that look at things like ice cores as, as an archive, as a sort of as a temporal archive, an archive of uh, changes uh, over time. And then we also brought up the idea of, of Earth system science. And perhaps uh, we, can, we can start looking at that now as, as, as really in, in the way we look at global environmental governance inside of the SPHERE project is not just being the when you think of governance as being the politics and the institutions in that sense, but also the, the science as being really sort of a core aspect of global environmental governance. Perhaps you can talk about that relationship, projecting the earth as, as a governable object and how science uh, really uh, is, is really uh, a key aspect of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I could actually let's continue with the ice core because that is how, how these two connect earth system science and, and the ice like, some, like the ice from the Greenland glaciers that is that the data that was then sampled from the ice cores were used to sort of determine the stability or instability of the earth earth climate dynamics as a whole so there was this translation going on really from the ice the chunks of ice in Greenland to the freezers in Copenhagen or in Colorado or all these different places and then how they became even more abstract into these kinds of data sets that scientists that had no affiliation with glaciology could use uh, and that's where the earth system scientists come in uh, so the ice course becomes one of these archives that they, they call it, which is, I think we could also maybe return to how history, how the sort of ideas from history really is present in the natural sciences in, in these instances. But um, yeah, the earth system sciences really uses, draws a lot from the work then made by glaciologists or oceanographers and all these different uh, field sciences. So it's a kind of a, a mass mass gatherer of different data and different, which I emphasize in my work, different timescales that they try to reconcile and try to make a unified, this one singular timeline in a way of, uh, of the Earth system. And that is also, I think, where the governance come in because that is the, the question that they touch upon is not really only about the past, but the key question here is the future. How can we use these archives of ice and, and uh, uh, of the ocean floor or of pollen to, to see what will happen in the future? So they will, they will become, I think, something more than an archive. And, and that is present also in how ice core scientists in the, in the 2000s present the research. They often call them the time machines made out of ice. And I think time machines really points to it's not only backwards, it's forwards as well. 
we can see all kinds of temporal directions in the eyes. Um, and that is where the governance side come in, because then you need to have a kind of frame of reference to, so how much damage can humanity do in relation to the kind of projections we can make from these archives? Uh, and I think that is ties into broader questions of like, what kind of governance does Earth system science enable? It's been criticized, and I think quite rightly, at least the form of our system science in the 80s, that was highly technocratic and put a great deal of faith in the possibility to, with very exact computerized models, predict what will happen in the future. And it paradoxically almost naturalizes human impact uh, and makes it as a kind of natural part of these flows of the Earth's dynamics, while we of course also know that they are the outcome of historical uh, choices and and power relations on among humans. So I think these archives has has been used in some ways to naturalize the changes, both the natural changes that happened before even before modern civilization, but also in some sense the future changes that is definitely not only a natural thing, so to speak. I mean, with Earth system science being such a core aspect of of global environmental governance, do you see then that scientists playing some sort of political role in their in their research maybe not explicitly but but certainly implicitly yeah definitely uh, both I think implicitly and explicitly and I think what I see when I look at my archival research is that there's also a gradual discovery among the scientists that they are becoming they are moving into the political spotlight uh, because I think it's important to remember that these scientists were in the 50s and 60s it was not even established that the the changes they were seeing happening in the deep past were even could even be related to human impact that humans could not affect planetary dynamics at that scale so they were not really even thinking some of them were not thinking really in environmental terms so much as that they were sort of geoscientists working like any geologist with things outside the scope of human impact but considering how we now think about the anthropocene for example we can see how new things have been dragged into our understanding of human impact. And that was what happened for the scientists as well, that they became more and more immersed into matters that were lying beyond the scope of their immediate uh, immediate field. And that is, Willy Danskot, for example, became a very vocal uh, about his concerns for climate change. Um, and he also wrote uh, articles in the 1970s, for example, about uh, the Norse colonies on Greenland, in the 15th century, and and he claimed that he could use ice cores as archives in a very very much like an historian to see why this happened. Um, but I think also that article points to the kind of tensions in in just looking at the ice to see why a human society failed because of all the complexities in human society is not visible in the ice. So I think that double tendency is there. But I think it's also very clear that the kind of understanding we have today of the Anthropocene and how all these different deep timescales are interwoven with politics and history, its uh, that, that knowledge did not really exist. They did have the data, but the kind of conceptual work that has been done in the Earth, Earth system science, not least, but also in, in natural science and social science humanities, and the kind of point we are today was very sort of unfathomable to connect all the dots, because yes, they have this vast amount of data and these notions that things are changing in the world and changing rapidly. But how to conceptualize it was, I think, really an historical process that took quite some time, some decades. I think it's one of the more interesting and exciting uh, aspects of 
writing history these days is this convergence between the natural sciences and earth system science with more traditional uh, history, in particular environmental history. I mean, some early work on this uh, in, in, in the context of the Anthropocene was done by the likes of uh, Libby Robin and, uh, and uh, Will Steffen, earth system scientist, and uh, Libby being an environmental historian. John McNeil collaborating with uh, Paul Crutzen and, and Will Steffen uh, to sort of merge these these timescales. How do you see, I mean, as, as, as a young um, researcher, historian, how do you see these these convergences taking place and affecting the work of yourself and other historians, and not just historians like yourself, but also historians from the from the other side of the uh, the disciplinary divide from the earth systems and from the natural sciences yeah that that's a, that's a great question and i think there's been a lot of developments in in recent years really to to try to bridge these divides because the histories we studied are so entangled and there's also this field of climate history where people historians are also working with ice cores for example uh, and i think that is a really really exciting exciting field I, I, of course, engage with it in my work, but I would also say that that is not quite, I think, where I find my dissertation and my research. Uh, and I, I'm rather, I have a background in the history of ideas and history of science. So I'm I'm more curious about the kind of historical process in itself, that how have these timescales, what were people thinking about these deep timescales, the deep past, the deep futures that emerged uh, in different fields and how did they work with them? So in a way, contextualize how this work we're doing today, how how was it even possible? Because I think it is a kind of transformative new way of thinking about natural history and human history, uh, at least compared to the 19th century and the earlier 20th century, that that the kind of present sort of Anthropocene debates, and, and there's been a lot of work done in this field for maybe 10 years. Um, what I want to look at is that now, even even though now the political scientists and historians and also activists and politicians are talking about these matters, I think that these discussions were gradually emerging in, in some sciences already in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so that this way of thinking of connecting geological time with human time and and the oceans with the with the glaciers and and all these kinds of connections being made that that has also been the work for scientists and um, and others way before we think of it like this today but as i said before they didn't quite have the the sort of conceptual apparatus to to say what was happening but i think there is an interesting story of how these matters became framed in certain ways due to the sort of material conditions in which the work was first conducted so so i think that is rather where i where i enter this this debate but it's very exciting to see all this kind of the the broad work being made in different ways that are all striving i guess more and more towards making sense of this new historical condition of course, the rise of climate change in this time period that you're looking at uh, from the 1950s and onwards is, is one of the main stories, not just of, of the environment, but I think of, of uh, international politics in general. And, and, and since we are, you know, in the Sphere Project, we are looking at uh, global environmental governance as sort of our, as our major lens, or our major object of study. Perhaps you can give just some examples uh, of, we talked about some of the materialities, the, the ice cores and such, and some of the individual scientists. Perhaps some of these, these sort of more governance concepts that come from a scientific basis, but have been injected into the governance debate. I know some work that you've done uh, together with me, so I, I know I know it pretty well. But I'll let you explain it. Uh, is the idea of the the two degree um, centigrade um, global average temperature target? Perhaps you can use that as a way just to just to give some some uh, real world example before we wrap things up about how science can have a direct impact on what we see as political debates and governance of the environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, the two-degree target is one of these fascinating emblematic examples of how science and politics really interact. Because what we, uh, when Eric and I worked on, on an article about this, is really that the two-degree target appeared in different settings that was not strictly scientific at first, like the economist William Nordhaus, who used, as he called it, his, his gut feeling, I think he even said, that two degrees was a reasonable target for how far we can go, so to speak, and this was in the 70s. But what we also could see was in the 80s that ice core data was added to this framework of a two-degree target, and some results from the ice cores seemed to indicate that that was an historical boundary that was also acceptable. So it it also goes to show that these data has been, sometimes they come first and then the politics is built upon the data we know. But it's also the case that um, this object, the governable planet or like these, all these different policy uh, targets are also sometimes comes first and then the knowledge is produced in tandem with the governance. And I think that is a really interesting part of the rise of global environmental governance that it has happened simultaneously with the rise of knowledge about global environmental change. Much of these new knowledges about how is the earth changing, what will happen in the future, has appeared as a response from a, a social concern of what will happen with this degradation. So it's a really intimate history of science and politics in this particular case, which I think is, is fascinating and, and shows, not least in, in the ice cores, but also in deep sea cores or in pollen samples, how they pop up in different political settings. It is a fascinating topic, and uh, you're about halfway through your dissertation at this point, almost exactly halfway. Uh, where does it go from here? You've, you've been uh, elaborating some of the work you've already done and some of your ongoing work. What do you see this as resulting in? Yeah, I, I'm trying right now to connect some of the dots. I've been having a bit of a scattered work now due to the pandemic and the lack of access to archival resources. But what I'm really interested in for the, the remainder of my work is to to think more about what I call now in, in my dissertation planetary timekeeping, the different practices that emerge to trace how is the planet changing and how does it relate to human impact and try to connect how it happens in oceanography and glaciology and palynology and then in the earth system sciences. So I've studied some of these different cases like Willy Donskort and the ice cores, for example, but I'm really interested in how these scientists from different fields and also uh, people involved with governance or business also interacted and the kind of collaborative uh, work in, in making the governable planet. Well, and then I could also perhaps just say that I'm also interested in the kind of questions, what does this mean for writing history broadly? Uh, and I want to, in a way, join these ongoing debates among historians about, so how do we approach this new condition of the Anthropocene if human history and natural history is so intertwined? What, what do we do? Uh, and then I hope to contribute to this by tracing the longer history of doing these precise connections that I think has not really been done in at least precisely this way before. So that is what I'm looking forward to do in the future. Oh, it's extremely innovative and um, compelling work you're doing, uh, Eric. And uh, we really enjoy having you here on the podcast, on the Sphere podcast, on the evolution of global environmental governance. I think you've actually kind of... Uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of the evolution of global environmental governance, all covered in one podcast with a PhD candidate, Eric Eastbury. So thanks again, Eric, for, for being here. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to the Sphere podcast. For more information about this, go to the Sphere website at sphereGovernance.org. My name's Eric Taglia. Thanks for tuning in. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover by Keith Foster. Sphere is supported by the European Research Council 
under the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.